Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet the next Director General of the European Spallation Source Neutron Science Facility in Sweden. We learn about how radiotherapy can be more effectively done in low- and middle-income countries, and we chat about our favorite physics-themed summer holidays. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? Starting in September, the ECS will offer a virtual short course series designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. Topics include fundamentals of electrochemistry, lithium-ion battery safety, advanced impedance spectroscopy, and electrochemical capacitor technology. Students receive significant short-course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click short course to learn more. It's the season for summer holidays here in the Northern Hemisphere, and I think everyone would agree that even the most hard-working and devoted physicists deserve some time off. If you still haven't planned your vacation, or you're looking for ideas for future holidays, Physics World has put together a guide to some of the most fascinating destinations for a physics-themed break. And to talk about physics holidays, I'm joined down the line by my colleagues Tushna Commissariat and Tammy Freeman. Hi, folks. Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hamish. Now, Tushna, you commissioned this article, which is called Holiday Hotspots for Physicists, and it's written by the London-based science writer Juanita Bawagan. Did you see a gap in the travel market for physicists? Is that, why, is that where the idea for the article came from? <laughs> well, Hamish, um, so this article is part of the August special issue, uh, which is physics on holiday. <laughs> and so we were thinking, you know, we have these special issues every year. And when we were planning our special issues for this year, we, you know, we realized that we'd have one in August. And, and we're th- we were saying, well, everyone's going to be on holiday in August. Who's going to want to read a big thing on, you know, quantum mechanics or condensed matter when you're on holiday? And then we said, well, what about if we did physics on holiday? And so we have articles on things like roller coasters, sand castles. And then we said, well, what about actual holidays? <laughs> and of course, I mean, I'm, I'm sure as both of you will agree with me, as physicists, when you go anywhere, um, you always have an eye out, whichever city you're in, was there a famous physicist who lived here or worked here? Is there a cool planetarium or a science museum? You know, um, and so we realized that there's actually lots of different ways in which you can incorporate a bit of physics into your holiday. It doesn't have to be an entire holiday that's themed around physics that might not give you much of a break 
if you are a physicist. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's ways to incorporate physics into all holidays. I mean, I have to say I have tried. Um, you know, they've been pretty lame. Like uh, I remember once we were, we were on holiday in France and drove past European synchrotron radiation facility. And I tried to get everyone excited about that. Um, <laughs> look at that big donut over there. You know what goes yeah. on there. That, that, it, it wasn't particularly successful. So, so Tishna, what, uh, what qualifies as a physics-themed holiday? I'm guessing just driving fat past a famous lab doesn't count. Well, probably not, probably not. But I mean, there's so many ways in which you can classify something as a physics-themed holiday. So whether it's um, actually planning your entire holiday around a physical phenomenon, such as, you know, astronomy, stargazing, eclipse hunting, whether you're really going out somewhere really far to visit a really exciting site and, and that happens to be in a beautiful country, or whether you are, as you say, driving through Europe or America or any part of the world, really, and um, there's been a physicist of note who lived there and, you know, um, they, they usually have some really good um, sort of, you know, museum things. You can go and see their house and see their old desk and, and things like that. So there's, there's really lots of fun ways to incorporate it. Um, Tammy might actually be the person to tell us all about physics themed holidays when it comes to eclipse hunting because uh, she is the bona fide eclipse hunter among us. That's right, Tammy. You, uh, you you actually appear in the article, and you you tell Juanita about uh, a physics-themed holiday that invent, involved traveling to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, which I'm guessing is not on the uh, you know a, a, a tourist hotspot in the U.S. What what was that all about? Uh, Tushna hinted at uh, an eclipse. Indeed. So this was a trip to the USA to see the total eclipse of August 2017 which was billed as the Great American Eclipse. And one thing that was great about it was that the line of totality stretched right across the USA, so there were plenty of places you could go to see it. Now, I'd been at a medical physics conference in Denver a couple of weeks earlier, and after that, my family flew out and joined me, and we had a bit of a road trip around various national parks, ending with the total eclipse on the 21st of August. Now, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska was where we stayed the night before, because um, despite booking our hotel nearly a year in advance, everywhere was really busy and packed. Um, on the actual day, we drove slightly west into Wyoming, and we just stopped at the side of a road in the middle of nowhere, but crucially, bang in the middle of the line of totality so that we could get the longest time seeing the total eclipse. And I, I suppose you, you were out um, on the Great Plains of uh, of the U.S., where it, it, it is often very sunny, isn't it? You you tend to get clear skies. So w w was that something that you considered when you when you booked your holiday? Um, you know, as opposed to um, maybe booking a holiday in Scotland to see an eclipse, where <laughs> there's a very good chance it could be cloudy. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this was actually the second time we'd had a holiday to see an eclipse because in 1999. Um, there was one in Europe. I remember it well. Yes. And in the UK, the only place that was going to be in totality was Cornwall, right in the corner, which apart from the fact that it was literally going to be full, I wasn't convinced about, you know, the weather and the cloud cover. So for that one, we actually went down into France and we, we booked a little holiday around that and again, sort of put ourselves on the line of totality. Um, 
that time we were lucky it was cloudy but uh, you know the clouds just just about parted for us to see it but the one in america was just perfect as you say totally clear blue skies it's really flat so you sort of had a 360 degree horizon all around you um and when the eclipse came it was just it was really impressive everything obviously went dark and quiet and there was almost like a sort of sunset all the way around you it was really really impressive I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone i remember the 1999 eclipse too i went out into my front garden to see it in india because that's all i had to do just step out into the front yard on a, on a nice summer evening and uh, there it was <laughs> oh you're both very lucky because i uh, i've tried a few times to see eclipses i, I think the best time was in bristol it was uh, it was a few years ago when we had a partial eclipse and i think uh, I, th I think we managed to uh, to see that one uh, a bunch of us from my from iop publishing but my, my my overriding memory of trying to see a solar eclipse was you know this was back in the 70s when i was a, a boy growing up in canada and um there was a partial solar eclipse i think it was on a day in march and it was absolutely snowing like crazy on that day and you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't see anything. And I, I don't know how we got th this into our head, but we, we all sort of climbed this snowbank in the schoolyard, <laughs> hoping that, you know, maybe our heads would go above the clouds <laughs> and we'd be able to see the, uh, the, the, the partial eclipse, which, of course, we knew we shouldn't look at. We did have uh, some homemade equipment. But, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my memory. And, of course, eclipses, you know, as, as well as being fantastic uh, sight, of course, they, they have been very important in physics, you know, for example, confirming predictions of uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity. So, yeah, a, a fantastic physics-themed holiday. So, Tishna, what, what else um, does Juanita mention in her article? Oh, Hamish, there's so many options, really. So, yes, especially if you can't always organize an entire trip you know, a good year or two in advance to another country to eclipse watch or even stargaze. There's this, I mean, stargazing is something that you can do from anywhere. You can do it from your own backyard, which, as we all know, in England might be quite difficult because, you know, <laughs> it's always going to be a bit of cloud. But, you know, there are clear days, so you can plan for that. Or um, there's lots of lovely dark sky parks, especially in the UK. Uh, and these are areas where the natural light is um, almost down to nothing. So they're really good places to go and stargaze. A really lovely place to do that in the UK is Northumberland. So Northumberland is a dark sky park where you can uh, just go yourself and stargaze. And they have some of these like glamping pods you can go and stay at. Um, of course, in the UK, the, the thing is that it's summer when you can have a better chance of a clear night. Uh, but that's also when you have the shortest period of darkness. So you have to sort of and then in winter, you have to really wrap up and be prepared to spend a freezing night out to look at the stars. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. Um, and there's, of course, um, one of the things that we didn't really get into in the article, but um, there are these stargazing cruises, too, and these physics-themed cruises, too, that sometimes have sort of scientific celebrities on board. And, and I mean, oh, that's, well, that's, that's like Brian Cox, for example. Would he be on <laughs> yeah, one of those cruises? I think I think they're a bit more of an American thing where you do have like I think there was one even with like to go on board with Stephen Hawking or something oh, like wow. that, you know, and, and you'd spend a week on a cruise ship with all these astronomers and there's talks all day and sort of, you know, stargazing all night. Sounds um, nice. So that's yeah, yeah, that's if, if that's if you want an 
fully packed physics holiday. But there's also there's also the nice thing is that if you don't want to do an entire entire holiday based on it, there's lots of ways to just have a really nice day out, especially if you're based in the UK. You know, some of um, my favorite examples are um, Bletchley Park. If you've never been to Bletchley Park, it's one of the best museums I've ever been to. So apart That's from where the code breakers the, were. Indeed, yeah. So you see all of the history of Alan Turing and, and the bomb machine and all of that. But it also now houses the um, National Computing Museum. So you literally see the entire history of computing including working models of some of the earliest computers ever built, but, you know, the ones that are the size of a room. So that's a really nice weekend holiday, actually. There's not there's nothing much around there, so you have to pretty much just go and spend your days. Um, but it's a really nice trip. Um, but there's also um, Newton, um, Isaac Newton's home north, and you can go and visit that. It's a National Trust property, so that's another nice day out. And there's also Drodrill Bank. So, you know, they have a they have an annual festival usually further out from just the UK. Um, there's, you know, there's literally so many places across Europe. So the next time you're in Prague, you can walk down the same um, cobblestone pathways that Heiko Brahe took. Um, and then, of course, his uh, assistant, uh, the very famous Kepler, Johannes Kepler. And there's a museum there that you can go and see about what they've done. If you're in Switzerland, you can you can go to Einstein House and go and see where Einstein lived for a couple of years. Wow, those are some great suggestions, uh, Tushna. So, so Tammy, you've done the Eclipse holiday. Um, if you had a chance to do another physics-themed holiday, what, what do you think you would do? Um, well, I like the sound of a lot of those that Tushna mentioned. Um, but one thing um, that I haven't done that I'd like to do is to go and see the Aurora at some point. Um, which oh, yeah. would necessitate going somewhere very cold, which I'm not too keen on. So at some point I'll have to overcome my fear of the cold and, and book a holiday where I can go and see see the Aurora. So I think that's what I'd like to do next. And what about you, Tushna? Well, the Aurora are definitely on my list too. But apart from that, I would really like to go um, to Chile, to the Atacama Desert and, you know, sort of See that area anyway and then visit all the amazing telescopes that they have over there. I think that'd be really exciting. And I have not been to South America. Um, so that would just be an amazing place. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, I think I, I have a similar pick. I, I'd really like to go to um, Lake Baikal, which is sort of smack dab in the middle of, of Russian Siberia. And as Juanita points out in the uh, in her article, there's actually a a, a neutrino detector um, that's under the uh, the lake. Um, and I grew up on the Great Lakes in North America, so I do love a big lake. But I'd also like to, um, you know, s see the lake in the winter um, when it's frozen and maybe go ice skating on it uh, and do those sorts of things as well. So, so yeah, Lake Baikal is definitely um, my choice. Uh, you, you can read uh, about these holidays and much, much more in Juanita's article. Just look for the headline, Holiday Hotspots for Physicists. And you can find that on the Physics World website. So, Tammy, last week was the annual meeting of the AAPM, the American Association of Physicists in Medicine. Now, you attended the meeting, which for the second year in a row was run as a totally virtual event. How did that go? Yeah, good, thanks. It's interesting. Last year, um, when I first attended the virtual AAPM, 
The idea of virtual conferences attended by thousands of people around the globe was quite a new concept. This year, I think people are just getting used to it. Both the speakers who have to prepare and record their presentations in advance and the attendees who they gain the ability to listen to talks wherever and whenever, but obviously miss out on that vital face-to-face contact that we were all used to previously in these meetings. So the AAPM conference had a new online platform this year. So if you listen to the talks live, there was some interaction with the speakers. Um, there was like Q&A sessions after the talks. Um, but also all of the talks were immediately available on demand after their allocated session. And this was really helpful to those of us in different time zones. And certainly for all the talks that I listened to, the software all worked perfectly and it all seemed very slick. Well, that's great. What about the content? What what are some of the highlights um, of the presentations that you listened to? So the first session that I attended was entitled Affordable Cancer Care for All. And this was a series of talks examining the disparity in cancer care across the world. So radiation therapy, it, it can be a really important part of cancer treatment for more than half of all cancer cases. Um, But in low-income countries, there's a massive lack of access to radiotherapy equipment, and only 10% of patients have access to radiotherapy. And this is a subject of of real interest to me. I like to hear how the medical physicists and their collaborators are developing technical solutions that address this problem, sort of with the aim of reducing costs and lowering the barriers to installing and running these radiotherapy services. Now, I would imagine that radiotherapy equipment is, is, is pretty complicated and, and, and you wouldn't want to do it on the cheap. So, so what, what can be done to, uh, to, to reduce the cost and, and improve access? One approach covered by um, a couple of the speakers is the idea of using lower energy kilovoltage x-ray tubes to deliver radiation treatments instead of the expensive and bulky linear accelerators that are used at the moment. So kilovoltage x-ray systems, these are the ones that are used for diagnostic imaging, and they're not usually thought to be suitable for delivering treatment, but it can be done. So um, one speaker, Michael Weil from Sirius Medicine and Precision RT, he described the development of a linear converging radiotherapy system, which uses such low energy beams to treat cancer. So um, the team's built a prototype device and simulated some example treatment plans, and they've demonstrated the feasibility of treatment delivery using this system. So one of its goals is obviously cost reduction, using less expensive hardware and infrastructure. But another of its advantages is it could also improve the workflow because it can perform imaging. So Michael said that the ultimate aim is to complete CT imaging treatment planning and treatment delivery in less than an hour. So that would be really impressive if they could do that and it would help you know, get much more patients through in a set amount of time. Another one of the speakers, uh, Mohamed Salipour from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre, um, he also described the use of a kilovoltage x-ray source for radiotherapy. And here, the idea is to combine a CT x-ray tube with an x-ray lens and create a converging beam that's focused on the tumour target. So his team is working with a medical startup company that has developed an x-ray lens um, based on concentric rings of single aluminium crystals. 
And he showed that this lens can effectively focus the X-rays and he presented the first generation prototype that the team's created where they've, um, they've put the X-ray tube and the lens in a robotic arm. Mohammed also pointed out that the system, it's got a much smaller footprint and lower shielding requirements than a conventional radiotherapy system. So it could be made mobile and driven around in a truck, for example, and to serve lots of different cancer centres. And I'm guessing that today it's not just the actual equipment that's important. There's a lot of, uh, of software that's used. I'm guessing very expensive software to do things like automated planning. How can the cost of that be uh, be reduced? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the costs, I mean, another problem is the lack of trained staff that sort of would know how to use this sort of software. So um, Tucker Neverton from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre described how AI and automation could help um, by providing remote support, such as, as you say, online treatment planning services, for example. So MD Anderson has developed um, a radiation planning assistant which is basically a fully automated contouring and radiotherapy treatment planning tool. And how this works is a clinic will simply upload the patient's CT scan and the plan order, and the tool will send back a complete treatment plan. So this is currently in the research phase, but Tucker said that the goal is to make its services available to clinics at no cost. So again, this, this would really help sort of, you know, implement radiotherapy in places where they don't have trained staff to do this. Wow, definitely. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like a really interesting uh, research program. So w what else have you uh, caught your eye at the conference? So I decided to listen to some of the best in physics presentations. And these are studies that have been chosen because they scored the highest. And I'll, I'll just describe a couple of these. So Emily Hewson from the University of Sydney, she described a technique called dose-optimised MLC tracking. Now, the MLC is the multi-leaf collimator that's used to shape the radiation beams that treat the tumours. And for tumours that move, this MLC can be used to track the motion and move about to keep the beam on target. But if you have multiple tumour targets with independent motion, this can lead to errors in the dose where the targets overlap. So Emily and her team developed a tracking method that optimises these MLC apertures based on the accumulated dose, so how much dose each target's received already. And she shared some simulation results showing that this new dose-optimised tracking could improve upon the previous geometric-based tracking for multi-target cancer treatments. In another example, Sayeda Yasmin Karim from Harvard Medical School described radioimmunotherapy dose painting. So in radiotherapy, there's a process called the abscopa effect in which non-irradiated tumours, such as distant lesions or metastases, they also shrink when the main tumour is treated. But in some cancers, this doesn't work. So the Harvard team are aiming to boost this abscopa effect. Um, so they did some studies on mice and they showed that treating the irradiated tumour with immunogenic biomaterial, increased its response to radiation and also increased the response of a lesion that wasn't irradiated on the animal's other side. They also added checkpoint inhibitors to activate the immune response and saw that this further enhanced the abscopal effect and increased the animal's survival. And Saida also showed that this approach worked when just a subvolume of the primary tumour was irradiated. And the big benefit here is this reduces 
radiation damage to surrounding tissue without impacting the tumour regression. So that's just a couple of examples of some of the talks that I listened to. Um, and I've written about some of the others in two Best in Physics articles that you can find on the Physics World website. Wow, it's, it sounds like you really got a lot out of this meeting, Tammy. Tushna, are you, a, are you a fan of virtual meetings? Well, I've got to admit, I haven't attended as many as I thought I would have by this point. And um, quite a few of the ones that I have attended have been the smaller ones and not the bigger conferences that I'm used to attending, like the APS in, in, in the US. I didn't get around to attending as much of the APS March meeting this year as I would have if I was on site if you know what I mean. But, you know, I, I guess there's benefits to it in that you could watch some of the talks for three months afterwards. And every time I'm at the APS, I'm always like, you know, there needs to be about 12 of me to attend everything that I want to attend. <laughs> That's so right, yeah. There's a good way around that. But of course, you know, um, all, all the, the, the nice catch-ups you have with journalists from all over the world in the press room, you know, trailing after a scientist after their talk to get 10 minutes with them in the lobby, uh, those are aspects that um, one does miss. So I think it's it's different. It, it has both pros and cons. Yeah, I I, I think I, I agree with you. When, when I go to meetings, and I do love to go to big meetings like the March meeting, for example, I really try hard not to sort of sit there and look at my phone or, you know, tap away on a laptop. Um, I really try to, you know, pay attention. And I find that if, I, if, I'm, if I'm watching a, a session at home or listening to a session at home, you know, it is very tempting to check your email or, or try to get something else done. Um, so, you know, I suppose that that's my problem, really. It does, um, it does require a bit of a, a bit more self-discipline, I think. I suppose I'm of a certain age where if someone in, in an audience is tapping away on their laptop, I, I will sort of, you know, start tutting and, <laughs> um, and you know, maybe. But what if you're taking notes? Well, about okay, talk? good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I did realize that some of those people, some of those people were, were taking notes. Yeah. But th <laughs> thanks, Tammy. Thanks for, for um, giving us an update about that conference. You can read more about the development of low-cost radiotherapy systems in Tammy's article, Physicists Innovate to Close the Global Radiotherapy Gap. Uh, thanks, Tammy and Tushna, for uh, coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Hamish. Thank you, Hamish. Helmut Schober is director of the Institut Laue Langevin, or ILL, which is an international facility for neutron science in Grenoble, France. In a few months, he'll be departing ILL to become director of the European Spallation Source, or ESS, which is an international center for neutron science now under construction in Lund, Sweden. Hi, Helmut. Welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on your appointment at ESS. Thank you very much, Hamish. Pleasure to be with you. Now, Helmut, the, the pandemic has been a significant challenge for big science facilities such as ILL, which are designed to be used by visiting scientists. And I know we were chatting before the interview, and you told me that you were actually on site um, during the pandemic um, at ILL. Um, so, so how has ILL coped over the past 18 months of travel restrictions and restrictions on how many people can work together in the same place? Uh, 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a tough time, but on the other hand, looking back, uh, we have the impression that we mastered uh, that period uh, very well. Uh, the first lockdown here in France was a hard lockdown, so that meant that for about three months, or really all our activities uh, had to be stopped. Um, but as we are uh, a nuclear installation, right, we run a research reactor to produce neutrons for science, we naturally had to have a core crew to uh, assure uh, all the security and safety uh, on site. And that at that point was the main challenge. Um, and fortunately, uh, we always had uh, the competent people we needed for these tasks so that there was no major problem. We used that first lockdown to reflect carefully how we would make sure to rebound. Uh, and uh, our strategy included running as many uh, what we call user cycles for our users uh, as possible. And what helped us was that already in the past, we realized the potential of uh, uh, remote piloting of experiments. And so we, we had a basis there. Uh, and we used the three-month uh, home office work mainly, but all the people in the computer department had no problem with that, naturally, uh, uh, to bring that up to speed. Uh, so with the, the enthusiasm, dedication of our scientific staff and all the people in the reactor division, we were capable of running a cycle in August with very reduced user participation, uh, but users could join into the experiments via the remote uh, access tools. Uh, and then we naturally had hoped that the cycles that we had planned for the beginning of this year would be with uh, user participation again. Uh, and as you know, there was the uh, second and the third wave uh, but our experimental program uh, was uh, very, very successful, and uh, we also have a good scientific output in terms of publications. So our users, our scientists, treated data that they had uh, uh, collected in the past. Uh, and not only that, also we could go ahead with all our projects, instrument upgrades, uh, and this in, in this context, it was very important that the companies we were working with, uh, we had a very long-standing relation with them. So they they did also their very best. Uh, um, naturally, we, 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 we had to make sure that there was no infections on site. So we put in place all the uh, uh, social distancing, uh, the hygienics uh, uh, required for that. And also there, we were quite successful. And we did that with our colleagues on the campus because, uh, as you know, we have the ESRF next door and we have other institutes like EMBL and, 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 and the French Institute for Structural Biology. So in the end, I must say it turned out well uh, for us. Naturally, our users, they, they are keen to come back. Everybody wishes that the pandemic finishes and that we can go back to our normal operations. But I think we made the best out of uh out of our facilities during these difficult times. So neutrons play an important role in determining the structure of biological molecules. Has ILL been contributing to our understanding of the virus that causes COVID-19 and indeed understanding other viruses? 
Yeah, well, uh, uh, certainly. Uh, the first results are actually just coming out. Uh, as you know, with neutrons, we have to do the experiments. We have to prepare the experiments, treat the data. But I'm happy uh, that I can report that uh, the first publications have now come out. We have, right from the start, uh, set up a task force uh, so uh, to facilitate uh, those experiments uh, at the ILL. Um, that meant that already, uh, as soon as the lockdown was a little bit lightened, the scientists could prepare samples in the in the labs. And so there were experiments done in August uh, and again during the two cycles uh, this year. So if I can give you uh, maybe uh, two examples, uh, one was. Uh, an experiment conducted, and I think I can say that with AstraZeneca because the publication is out and the name of the company is on the publication, uh, where uh, we looked into the carriers of uh, for vaccines. Uh, so, so the as you know, the RNA, the uh, genetic material, uh, has to be transported uh, through our bodies, and so this is done or uh, could be done uh, in a liquid nanotroplet. And so, uh, on the other hand, for this liquid nanodroplets, our body is a, a quite hostile environment also. So we have to make sure uh, that the release is done properly uh, so that the vaccine can get full uh, power uh, to, to act. And so, uh, with uh, small angle neutron scattering, we, we looked at those uh, lipid, uh, lipid nanodroplets. We, we looked at them without the RNA incorporated with the RNA incorporated, and then there are certain proteins, apoproteins, that are responsible for carrying fat in our bloodstreams. And, and, and so we looked also how they would attach and how they would change the composition of the nanodroplets and, for example, whether that could lead to premature release of the, of the RNA. So that was uh, one example, and that you find in the literature. If you if you check on the ILR website, by the way, on our scientific news, you can find the relevant links. And another example that just came in was how the spike protein interacts with membranes. So in that case, it was a model membrane. You add the spike protein in this case in solution, right? It's very fundamental science. What was also interesting is the spike protein not only binds to receptors. Uh, it also interacts with lipids. There's pockets that uh, can be receptors for lipids. So it can deplete, in some sense, your membrane. And the question is, how, for example, uh, would that facilitate uh, the virus penetrating our our cells and then doing the damage? So these is two examples. And I think as we had discussed at some time in the past, uh, another nice examples are related to the HIV virus where we did a lot of crystallographic uh, studies um, where the neutrons add the information about the protons and the water. And that was important at the time that was again done uh, with, uh, with pharmaceutical companies to understand how certain drugs bind to certain, uh, to, for example, the protease uh, of the HIV virus. And if this protease is blocked, basically the replication of the HIV virus is uh, interrupted. 
So, so you see there is uh, over the full spectrum, even in spectroscopy, uh, studies are done either here at the ILL, but also at other facilities, for example, SNS in the US, where you gather information uh, that then is, is an input for modeling. So to understand all aspects of not only the virus, but how the virus interact with uh, with the membrane and, and and you try to get information about the whole life cycle so i'm very pleased as i said that these uh publications came out in a only after a, a, a couple of months after the data have been taken which is which is quite impressive so helmet you say that you're you're looking forward to um welcoming users back to ILL. But do you have any indication that um, after the pandemic, um, maybe users would be more uh, interested in, in using the facility remotely rather than traveling? Is, is there any trend in that direction that you know, is maybe accelerated by the pandemic? Well, I, I think really, Amish, it's difficult to say uh, uh, what will happen over the next years because, you know, we are also concerned about the environment and limiting traveling and so on. So there's many aspects. What I can say at the moment is that from uh, our scientific council, from our uh, steering committee, uh, we we are strongly encouraged uh, to run again the, the, the a user program with a user presence. Because people are fully aware of also the training aspect, as you know, many of our users are uh, young scientists. Uh, they are postdocs, PhD students. They come with their supervisor. So it's very important that they also on-site see how the experiment is conducted. It depends also a little bit on the experiment. If it's uh, a simple measurement, we since quite some time we have fast access routes and we would not bring people here. Uh, to collect one diffractogram and to determine one structure. Uh, but other complicated experiments, there is the question of the sample preparation. Our, our scientists do their very best to, to, to carry that out, but we also, some of our experiments we just couldn't do, right? Because you need the expertise uh, with the sample, uh, and that's uh, not available always at the ILL. What I see actually is that these remote handling tools uh, will pay off and will give a different quality of future experiments because, you know, even in the past, you spent quite some time emailing or uh, on the telephone discussing with the people back home in the lab about your measuring strategy. And now they can be virtually be here. So, so what I sort of anticipate is that we will have uh, users here but those users will be a lot more in contact with their home base, and there will be a lot more exchange, and that actually will enhance the uh, uh, the experiment. And another aspect, very important for me, is you know, is my scientists at the institute here. They have to be uh, incorporated into the collaborations. They 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 not in all cases, but uh, in many cases, uh, they are part, fully part of the experimental team. And for that, it's also important that there is this physical contact. So I think like what we see with conferences now and, and review committees, probably we will, we will have a mixture. There, it's the same. It's the same. Uh, our, our committee members tell us, no, we have to be at the ILL. We have to see the facility uh, working. Uh, we have to see what's going on there. But maybe instead of 
traveling out to Grenoble twice a year, once a year is sufficient. We have to see what is the best trade-off in, in reducing our, our fingerprints on the environment and using those new tools. Uh, but all these aspects, training, collaboration, uh, they are important. They are recognized. So, so I think it will be, we will go towards some hybrid, hybrid, uh, operational mode. If you ask a scientist what they like about working at ILL, they'll often mention the research environment in Grenoble. And, and that includes the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, the Structural Biology Division of the European Molecular Biology Lab. There's lots of lots and lots of good science going on in Grenoble. How important is being a member of that community to ILL? Well, I think it's, it's actually very important, uh, Hamish, because as you know, science is more and more connected. It's more and more transverse. Uh, the tools we have are, are manifold. Um, they are all very potent. And actually what makes very often uh, a successful uh, paper is the combination of techniques. Uh, the fact that we have the ESRF next door, the EMBL, and also the uh, Institute for Structural Biology, uh, the French one, is very important. Um, it allows uh, us to, to align strategies even during the pandemic, I must say the fact that I was not, not alone here making the decisions was very important. Also in that context, what was also important, you know, is for the users that they somehow have the impression that the policies of all these institutions are aligned, that if they don't get access to the ILL, they also don't get access to the ESRF. So I think in terms of visibility, in terms of scientific collaboration, we also have a very strong university here uh, that is climbing up the ladder in the international ranking. That's also very important. Lots of research facilities uh, on this, what we call the, the press uh, here, the peninsula, the scientific peninsula in Grenoble. Uh, is important for our students. It's important. We have common uh, summer schools. Our PhD program is fully incorporated here with the university and so on. So, so we ca one can really not uh, underestimate the 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 value of uh, uh, being surrounded uh, by by excellence, a scientific excellence on all sides. So, very important. In November, you're going to be leaving Grenoble to lead the European Spallation Source uh, in Sweden, and, and that's currently under construction. H how is the ESS different to ILL? What new opportunities will it offer scientists? Well, the, the ILL, as I have mentioned briefly, uh, the, the, uh, runs a neutron source, which is a research reactor, uh, and it's uh, producing the highest flux uh, of neutrons at the uh, at the moment uh, for science, right? So that that's an accomplishment. I would like to underline that because the ILL uh, uh, reactor was constructed 50 years ago. We will uh, celebrate 50 years of uh, being critical uh, at the end of the year, and so that's an accomplishment. And uh, and we are still the the world leading neutron source in terms of of output for a single source. Uh, and that was possible because we did all the instrument upgrades, we profited uh, from new technologies. So, so it was a continuous evolution. The difference uh, of the ESS is a spallation source. 
So uh, the SS will produce neutrons not with a, uh, a reactor. It will produce neutrons by accelerating protons to very high uh, uh, energies, uh, giga-electron volt range. That uh, has the advantage that you can pulse your neutron production. And so the idea underlying the ESS is that you would have the same integrated uh, flux uh, of neutrons as the ILL, uh, but as you compress it uh, in peak power, you are about a factor 30 or so uh, higher. And you can use this time structure, this like always in physics, it's just extra information uh, you have, and, and basically you can use it to distinguish the energies of uh, the neutrons that arrive at your sample or at your detector. So this factor 30 uh, translates also in a factor 30 uh, in, uh, in gains. And, and with that, you, you can reach a new quality of experiments. I mean, it depends now how you want to use that. Do you want to do 30 times more experiments? Do you want to tackle those experiments you couldn't do in the past? Not all experiments will be able to profit from this time structure. So, uh, But the ESS, as it is a pulse source, you also have to imagine it's a little bit like switching your reactor on 16 times a second bringing it up to, uh, for the beginning to 2 megawatts. The final aim is to 5 megawatts and then switching it off again. And it's a long accelerator. Uh, if you go to Lund, Lund you will see that it's, it's, it's a nice walk uh, uh, along the, the accelerator. So there's many components. The reliability uh, is a challenge. Uh, making all these things work uh, is a challenge. Uh, so that's the difference, I would say, between between the two sources. And naturally, what what the whole community hopes is that with the ESS, and I'm sure we will succeed, is a, a new world leading uh, flagship for Europe or for our large neutron community, and that we can push also the frontiers along many of the uh, because we are very multidisciplinary along many of the directions where we do research. So in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's the potential of the ESS. And your main task um, in Lund will be to take the facility from the construction phase to the operational phase. Well, what are the main challenges that you'll face? And when can we expect the first experiments to be done at the ESS? Well, uh, as you may know, uh, ESS is currently in a rebaselining exercise uh, because due to COVID, even so there as well as, you know, Sweden had uh, rather light lockdowns, but there were natural delays because also a project like that relies on many contributions from particular in-kind partners, but also uh, from companies uh, that would supply uh, equipment. So that introduced some delays and the team at ESS is currently fully engaged on uh, establishing a new timeline. Um, so I have to be careful uh, with uh, with what I promise, but naturally my hope is that during my uh, term as a channel director, which is five years, we will see first experiments. So we are talking here about the year 25, 26. The challenge is uh, naturally first to finish the project. It's true, yes. If you look at my job advertisement, it says it's the transition. The first part of the transition is to successfully 
finish the project, to finish the accelerator, the targets, and then do all this uh, in parallel, uh, prepare for the installation of the the instruments, um, build up all the services also that go with it. Uh, and and as our resources are limited, uh, and it's always the case, you know, we have always uh, limited financial resources, human resources. We have to do that in the most uh, intelligent way, place the right uh, priorities that, so that we we advance in the in in the optimal in the optimal way and the way i like to see that transition is a little bit like a relay race um because uh while well, you're in the project space you have to build the facility uh, and then you go to uh the uh exploitation the scientific exploitation which one has to be very careful is not a static exercise, as I just had mentioned for the ILL. This was 15 year, 50 years of continuous uh, development. Science never stands still, and facilities have to progress during all that time. Uh, but you need different competences, and uh, so you have to pass the baton, uh, but not to a different runner. It's your same organization. So you, it's a little bit like a transformer, right? Uh, I really have this image in my head uh, where the car becomes uh, an animal uh, with the same components. And so this is naturally a, a challenge, as you can imagine, right? Deplo- redeploy competences for the organization. And you have to do that in the European context because as ESS at the moment is not yet providing neutrons and will never be the sole neutron provider for Europe, what is important is uh, that the others, ILL, uh, but also ISIS in the UK, the PSI, the Munich neutron source, that they keep the community alive, that they drive the science forward. We pick up on all these trends so that what we install is really the best for the science that uh, we expect uh, to be relevant in uh, relevant in the years 26 and after. So yes, it's a big challenge. I'm I'm very optimistic because we it's very competent people at the ESS. I also count on all my colleagues and the other facilities to give us a helping hand. We have lots of in-kind partners that provide us with top-notch uh, equipment. Uh, but as I said before, it's a complex machine. And we know from experience, right, installation sources have been built in the United States, in Japan, that it takes time, and in particular to reach, which is very important for the user, this reliability, because uh, when you have hundreds of people preparing their experiments, uh, traveling to your facility and expecting to get the beam time, they expect it to get it on time and with the right quality. So that's my task with my team at ESS to make it happen. And uh, uh, as I always say, it's a little bit like if you launch a rocket, right? The, the, the rocket is not the purpose in itself at the ESS. The accelerator, the target are not the, the objective of the facility, neither the instruments. What really then you have to do is place the satellite with your rocket. And the satellite in itself is just a tool to do the science. Whether you then look at 
some atmospheric phenomena or whether you predict uh, uh, weather. We make weather forecasts, and for the ESS, it will be to have a lively user program. So, so what I what what is the vision I have of what I have to achieve that around 26, 27, the guide halls feel feel with uh, fill with uh, scientists. Uh, that are enthusiastic about all those new possibilities and that produce uh, great results that we can then publish, impactful results that we can publish in the best papers. Uh, so this is this process. It will it will take a couple of years, uh, but then it's also meant to last for 40 years uh, once it's up uh, and running. So... Uh, a, a big challenge, and uh, but as I said, I'm I'm very confident uh, because in Europe we have this this uh, uh, really uh, good history, uh, uh, successful history of neutron scattering, and we have this this very strong knowledge base. Well, that's great. Thanks, thanks for explaining that, Helmut. It sounds like uh, you've definitely got your your work cut out for you <laughs> over the next few years. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I hope that we can speak again soon in Lund at the ESS. Thank you, Hamish. It was a, it was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to communicate on science. And uh, as I said before, if people are interested also in the ESS, go to the website. There is a continuous update on the progress and uh, ILL, ISIS, all the neutron centers have wonderful uh, examples of the, of the great work we are doing. And uh, if somebody out there would want to do an experiment at some point with us, uh, don't hesitate to get in contact with us. It would be a pleasure for us to welcome you here in Lund, uh, in Ditkert, at here in Willingen, in Munich, or in Lund, wherever those wonderful neutron sources are placed. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Helmut Schober, Tammy Freeman, and Tushna Commissariat for joining me today. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast. It's called Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World, and it features two scientists who are involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.